Hello and welcome to Paul Martin's Audiobooks and Ideas. I'm an evangelical Protestant Christian. I follow the Bible as my supreme standard. And I'm talking today about the Eastern Orthodox Church and why I'm not Eastern Orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox Church is the predominant Christian religion in most of Eastern Europe and Russia, and they form the largest communities of Christians in many other parts of the world. They've tended in centuries past to be limited to ethnic groups, ethnic enclaves, but in the last few decades, Eastern Orthodox Christians have become very active in missionary work in trying to convert Protestants, Catholics, Muslims and other people. And so I'm going to look at what are some of their beliefs and what is the Protestant response. And should we become Eastern Orthodox? Or should we measure their beliefs against what the Bible says? So the Eastern Orthodox Church today is a major intellectual, theological challenge to Protestants. And if we can't intellectually engage with them and debate them and study them, we're not going to have much of a hope in refuting them or stopping them from converting many of our people over to their side. So I'm going to give a list of reasons of why I'm not Eastern Orthodox. Eastern Orthodoxy is based on the corrupt and contradictory beliefs of the early church fathers, just like Catholicism is. And both sides argue over what the early church fathers said. If you study the early church fathers, you'll find that they're very contradictory in their beliefs and that a, a better foundation for the church is scripture rather than the early church fathers. Some of these early church fathers were very smart intellectual men, but they all contradict each other. And it's a very weak uh, foundation to base it on their beliefs. The Eastern Orthodox Church does, of course, regard the Bible as God's word. And some extra books in their canon they regard as scripture. But they see the scripture as also being part of tradition. So if they find a scripture verse here and there that appears problematic to their beliefs, they tend to just dismiss it because they also find things in the early church fathers that they find problematic, but they tend to just say, well, what's the overall teaching of their tradition? And they stick to that. But if you look at the early church fathers, Cyril of Jerusalem omitted the book of Revelation as scripture, and Tertullian included Enoch as scripture, and um, in the apostolic canons, it omitted the books of Tobit and Baruch and Sirach and Revelation, which is problematic for them since they regard these books as scripture. Uh, we Protestants, of course, regard Revelation as scripture, 
and the Eastern Orthodox Church does not have it in their liturgy because they were originally rather suspicious of that book. Uh, Jerome, for example, rejected all of the Apocrypha as spurious and not scripture. On the other hand, various other church fathers did accept parts of the Apocrypha or all of it. So if you're going to base your beliefs on the church fathers, you run into a landmine of problems. And this podcast, I'm not going to address the church canon, but I'm addressing Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, one of the co- contradictions is that one of the some of the early church fathers rejected uh, Mary as being sinless. They said she was a sinner. Tertullian, in his On the Flesh of Christ, chapter 7, uh, said that Jesus was rebuking Mary's unbelief in Matthew 12, 48, where he says, What are the mother and brothers to me? Oregon, in his homilies on Luke, chapter 17, verses 6 to 7, commented on Luke 2.35, a sword shall pierce your heart. And he said that the sword that would pierce Mary's heart was that of unbelief and doubt. And he talks about how Jesus died for Mary's sins. Um, So when we study the foundation of Eastern Orthodoxy, a lot of it contradicts their beliefs. The Orthodox Church is also based upon much fictional history, as is the Catholic Church as well. An example of this would be Saint Fecla. Saint Fecla is supposed to have been a martyr in the 2nd century AD. She's canonised in the Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Coptic and Oriental Orthodox Churches. And it comes from a book called The Acts of Paul and Fecla, written about 180 AD. And Tertullian is the very first person to mention this book, and he said it was heretical and fiction. And he said it was written by an elder in Asia Minor, or where Turkey is, who admitted to the church that he made up the story. And that's in Tertullian on Baptism 17. And Jerome also mentions this as well. But by the 4th to 5th centuries, people that hadn't read what Tertullian and Jerome said read the Acts of Paul and Fecla and they came to the conclusion that it was true history rather than fiction. And as a result, the Catholic and Orthodox churches have canonised a woman who never existed. Now, since these churches claim to be divinely guided, we can see they're in error um, on this. Another thing they ask, another example, is Saint Longinus. He's supposedly the Roman soldier who pierced Jesus' side. Now, The date and origin, the name Longinus, is first mentioned in the Gospel of Nicodemus, an apocryphal book that was written in the 4th century AD. So we have the account in the Gospels about the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And then more than 300 years later, an apocryphal book claims that the soldier who did that was called Longinus. And then in the 6th to 7th century, a pseudepigraphal apocryphal book was written called The Letter of Herod to Pilate. Again, it's fiction, and it claims that Longinus was suffered by being mauled by a lion in a cave every night, then his body went back to normal, and he suffered this same fate until the end of time. So, first they invented a name for this Roman soldier, then they invented the torture he would go through every single night, and then by the 10th century AD, a brand new idea was invented, claiming that he was a blind Roman soldier, and he was healed of his blindness after piercing Jesus' side. And that comes from the Latin Passion Play, added by Petrus Comesta, who died in 1178 AD. So, Longinus is a fictional story that was developed uh, 300 to 800 years after the fact. But St. Longinus is a saint who has been canonised by the Catholic, Coptic Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox churches. And yet, we find that this is rubbish. Yes, there really was a Roman soldier who stuck his spear into Jesus' side, as the first century Gospels tell us. But the idea that he became a Christian and had the name Longinus was invented many centuries after the fact. Now, people might think, well, why am I going on and on about St. Feckler and St. Longinus? My point is that these are fictional stories that the Orthodox and Catholic churches claim to be divinely guided in canonising these people as saints. And so when the Orthodox and Catholic churches claim to be based on traditions that date back to the Apostles, I say, no, you've based it on fictional stories and myths that inve were invented centuries after the time. So that's one of my reasons why, my second reason for not being Orthodox. The first is, the Orthodox Church is based on the corrupt and contradictory beliefs of the Church Fathers. The second reason is the Orthodox Church is based upon fictional history and dubious, bogus traditions and lies. The third reason is that the Orthodox Church denies the Filioque Clause. Now, the Filioque Clause is the claim that the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and the Son. In John's Gospel, uh, Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. But he didn't say only the Father. He didn't say only the Father and the Son there. But when you read other parts of Scripture, the Scripture supports the Filioque. And that's why the Catholic Church added that clause to the Creed. However, there's a problem. 
So in the Nicene Creed in 325, it did not have the Filioque Clause. And in 431 AD, at the Third Ecumenical Council, so that means it's authoritative for both Catholic and Orthodox churches, declared anathema, that anyone was accursed and outside of Christ, if they added to the creed. And this was reiterated in the Eighth Ecumenical Council of 879 to 880 AD. And then the Catholic Church disobeyed and undermined its own church authority by adding to the creed. So, in 809 AD, Pope Leo III forbade the use of the filioca, despite agreeing with it theologically. And then in 1014 AD, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry II persuaded Pope Benedict VIII to add the filioca phrase to the creed. And then a few years, a few decades later actually, in 1054 AD, a full and permanent schism occurred between the Eastern and Western churches. Well, the Bible teaches the filioca. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father in John chapter 15, verse 26. The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. John 16.7 says, Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying he would send the Holy Spirit. And the Father sends the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33, it says that Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Titus 3, verses 5 to 7, says God saved us by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of the Father. Matthew chapter 10, verse 20 and the Spirit of the Son, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And John the Baptist taught the Filioca when he said about Christ, He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Another thing that teaches the Filioca is if you compare John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, with Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. And they were both written by the Apostle John. John chapter 7, 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And then in John 20, 22, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now we go to Revelation 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the river of life, which John 7 says is the Holy Spirit, was flowing out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That means the Father and the Son. The Filioque doctrine scandalises the Orthodox Church since the Bible teaches it, but it also scandalises the Catholic Church since they reject their own magisterium that forbade adding to the creeds. So that's my third reason for rejecting Eastern Orthodoxy. They deny the Filioque clause. My fourth reason is that the Orthodox Church does not allow married men to be bishops. Only celibate men or widowers can be bishops. Well, what does the scripture say about church leaders and bishops? Can they be married men? 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 to 5 says... Paul the Apostle writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Aren't you my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, yet at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defence to those who examine me is this. Have we no right to eat and to drink? Have we no right to take along a wife? who is a believer, even as the rest of the apostles, and the brothers of the Lord, and Kephas? So he's asking the rhetorical question, of which the answer is yes, that he can, in fact, have a wife. And then we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, which talks about bishops. This is a faithful saying, if a man seeks the office of a bishop or overseer, he desires a good work. The bishop, therefore, must be without reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, modest, hospitable, good at teaching, not a drinker, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having children in subjection with all reverence. But if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the assembly of God? <clears throat> now here we see, he says that a bishop has to be the husband of one wife and he has to have obedient children and that if such a man doesn't know how to rule his own wife and children, how can he rule the church? In other words, it was a prerequisite for a man to be a bishop. He had to have a wife and children. But in the Orthodox Church, they have banned uh, married men from being bishops. They've changed husband of one wife to husband of no wife. 
And there's no justification for this without completely and utterly uh, torturing and, and destroying the text and making it say the opposite of what it actually does say. The Orthodox Church does not ban marriage, but they do ban married men from being bishops. And forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons, as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> My next reason for rejecting Eastern Orthodoxy is that they teach theosis, <clears throat> or what Catholics call divinization. They quote Athanasius, who says, God became man that man might become God. Now, ontologically, they insist that we can never become God in the sense that there's one God and we can't become part of him, nor can we become God in his transcendent essence. However, they say we can attain the energy of God. And they quote Irenaeus in his Against Heresies, Book 5, Preface, where he says, Christ, who did through his transcendent love become what we are, that we might, that, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. And Maximus the Confessor, who died in 662, in his Philokalia, said, Let us become the image of the one whole God bearing nothing earthly in ourselves, so that we may consort with God and become gods. Well, well, well. And they claim it happens through three stages. There is the purgative way, or purification. Then the second is illumination. You get the vision of God. And then three is sainthood, the unitive way or theosis. I appreciate the fact that they don't take the crazy heretical Mormon view of becoming literal divine gods, which of course is rubbish, and they do have a more deeper, well-thought-out theological view on this. What ought we to say as Protestants? Well, I stick to what the scripture says. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8, it says that God will not give his glory to another. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, the serpent lied and said that Adam and Eve would become like God. So the first person to teach this theosis was the devil. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. So the Bible does not teach theosis. It says that it's actually a mystery that we cannot comprehend. It gives us a few vague hints, but theosis is going way over what the scripture says and adding things in that are not there. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Beloved now, we are children of God, and it is not yet revealed what we will be. But we know that when he is revealed, that's Jesus, we will be like him, 
for we will see him just as he is. So we will be like Jesus. We will be made in his image. But I'd be very careful of language saying become God or become gods. It lends itself to a lot of heretical and distorted views of God and what he's doing to us. Jesus offers us eternal life, John 3.16, and fellowship with God, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, where there'll be no more pain and sorrow. But it says nothing about becoming a God or gods. So I would prefer it's better from Scripture to avoid this sort of language and to stick to what the Bible promises, eternal life and fellowship with God. My next reason for rejecting the Orthodox Church is because they condemn schismatics, such as Catholics and Protestants, even though the Orthodox Church is in schism with itself. I once had a Protestant friend of mine, and he converted to the Russian Orthodox Church. He later left the Orthodox Church and joined the SETI Vacantist Catholics, which are a breakaway Catholic group. But when he first started arguing with me, his first argument and reason for becoming Orthodox is he said there is 30,000 Protestant denominations. And I read an article later from the National Catholic Register, February the 9th, 2016, by Scott Eric Alt. And it's entitled, Why, uh, we, it's entitled, We Need to Stop Saying That There Are 33,000 Protestant Denominations. And this article cites the World Christian Encyclopedia, whose study found there was about 9,000 Protestant denominations. There was 242 Catholic denominations, and there was 781 Orthodox denominations. Admittedly, there is a lot more Protestant denominations than Catholic and Orthodox ones. But nevertheless, every one of these branches of Christendom are divided into at least hundreds of denominations. So the, the claim they want to make to us that they are one denomination and we are many doesn't fit. Now, should... Protestants work towards unity. Yes, they should, but we're not going to realistically have unity, but neither are they. And their claims that um, they're holding Protestants to a standard that they themselves aren't living up to. And furthermore, there are many schisms within Eastern Orthodoxy. They had the Great Schism in 1054 in which the Catholic and Orthodox churches went their separate ways and excommunicated and cancelled out each other. Then from 1467 to 1560, there was the Moscow-Constantinople Schism. Then there was Raskol, the Russian Orthodox Church, split uh, into the official church 
and the old believers in the mid-17th century, beginning in 1653. And they condemned and anathematized each other. In 1996, from February to May, there was a schism, the Moscow-Constantinople schism, and then they managed to heal their rift. And then in 2018 onwards, they had another schism, the Moscow-Constantinople schism, Again, so clearly the Orthodox Church does not have the unity they claim. They have the same divisions that they condemn Protestants for having. And I'm not saying this to mock or ridicule them, but I say it only to point out that Christians will not be in full agreement with each other until we're in heaven, until we've been transformed into the image of Christ. What Christians do have, if they know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, is a universal brotherhood that is not often recognised. My next reason that I reject the Orthodox Church is because the Orthodox Church condemns Protestants for using musical instruments in worship services. In the Orthodox Church, they do uh, chanting usually, I think, almost entirely without any uh, musical accompaniment. Now, there's nothing wrong with chanting praise to the Lord, provided your heart sincerely means that. But are they right to condemn us for worshipping God with musical instruments? Well, I think the, the key is what does the scripture say? Psalm 150, verses 3 to 5, says to praise God with the sounding of the trumpet, praise him with the harp and lyre, praise him with the tambourine and dancing, praise him with stringed instruments and flute, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with resounding cymbals. That's drums, my friend. This lists every known musical instrument, it would seem, to the ancient Israelites. Tambourines, stringed instruments, loud music and dancing. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 to 23, we read that David danced almost naked. He had a linen ephod around his chest. He danced almost naked before the Lord, and they had trumpets playing. In Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 19, they had the shofar or horn for playing. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 5, we read that King David played with harps, tambourines, castanets, cymbals, and lyres. Miriam and the Israelite women danced and played tambourines. Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. And we also find uh, instrumental music was played. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15, Elisha said, But now bring me a harpist. 
And while the harpist was playing the instrumental music, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha. And in 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23, we read that David played with musical instruments for Saul and it drove evil spirits away. So there is nothing unholy or evil or wrong about Protestant churches playing loud music, electric guitars and drums, as long as those doing that worship have a sincere heart to glorify Jesus. But they have no right to condemn us for using musical instruments. My next reason that I reject orthodoxy is the Orthodox Church sees Protestants as the illegitimate bastards of the illegitimate Catholic Church with no apostolic succession. That's putting it very bluntly, but that is certainly the vibe I've picked up when I've argued with some of these people online. Well, and both the Catholic and Orthodox churches claim that their church is the true church with apostolic succession. Is apostolic succession taught anywhere in Scripture? And the answer is no. Even the phrase is found nowhere. Is having apostolic succession proof that one is right with God and a member of the one true church? Well, 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 let's look at what Scripture says. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, we read about Alexander the coppersmith who did much harm to Paul's ministry. And then we read about Demas, who was a fellow worker in the gospel with Luke and Mark, Philemon 24, and with Paul in Rome, Colossians 4.14, but later on, 2 Timothy 4.10, we read... Paul says, Demas left me, having loved this present world, and went to Thessalonica. And some have shipwrecked their faith, such as Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he handed over Satan to learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Now, all these people had had the laying on of hands from the apostles, so they had apostolic succession. But did they follow the teachings of the apostles? No, they did not. And the Orthodox Church does not follow the teachings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he says that a bishop should be the husband of one wife, So just because Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp may have known the apostles and other church fathers and known people who knew the apostles doesn't mean they were correct or correct on everything they said. True apostolic succession is following what the apostles taught in their own writings, namely the New Testament, not traditions from the later church fathers who contradict what is written in scripture. And furthermore, must one have apostolic succession to follow Jesus and do his will? Well, what did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, There I am in the midst of them. 
And this is what the apostles had to say to Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he doesn't follow with us. Jesus said to him, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. So that's another reason I reject Eastern Orthodoxy, because they believe we have to have apostolic succession to be a legitimate church. But the scripture shows that's not taught anywhere. And it goes against what Jesus said. Another reason I'm not Eastern Orthodox is because the Orthodox Church denies original sin and it denies the significance of the fall in Genesis 3. The Catholics are correct on this. They see the Garden of Eden as paradise lost. And we Protestants agree with them, not because they're Catholic or because they're in the Western Church, but because they're correct in what the Bible says on this particular issue. And Genesis 3 describes the perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had with, with God and how it was harmed by sin. And Romans particularly emphasises this. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, as sin entered into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death passed to all men because all sinned. And Romans teaches that Christ was the second Adam who came to restore us to not the same relationship, but to an even better relationship with God. And so the scripture is about going from creation to new creation. And sin is the great problem that has affected that. And the Orthodox Church plays down the importance of sin and original sin. The Orthodox Church also has a vague idea of who is saved and who is condemned. Their churches tend to be inward-looking, ethnic nationalists a lot of the time, rather than a church proclaiming Christ to a lost world. Some Orthodox Christians have the attitude that whatever religion you're in, you should stick to it, even if you're a Muslim or a Hindu, as long as you're sincere. And then others have the view that only they are the true Christians and that all uh, Catholics, Protestants and others are condemned to hell and lust. Well, what does the scripture say about who is saved and who is not? And I don't for a moment deny that if a sincere Orthodox or Catholic Christian trusts in Christ with all his heart, he will be saved. And a Protestant who is insincere and doesn't follow the Lord will not be saved. It's about your heart and your relationship with God, not the church you're a member of. Although the church you're a member of can harm your relationship with God and your understanding of God's grace. But here is the gospel message. Who is saved and how are we saved? John 3.16 says, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So we have to trust in Jesus. But what if you're a sincere Muslim or Buddhist or atheist? In John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right <coughs> to become God's children, to those who believe in his name. And Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to confess Jesus as Lord, and you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There was a very passionate and sincere Anglican, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He worked a lot for the reconciliation of South Africa, but he was asked in an interview in 1990 when I was a missionary kid there on national television, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? And he said, absolutely. And the guy said, but do you believe in the literal resurrection? And he said, oh, no, no, no. It was a psychological resurrection. I'll tell you what, if he had died believing that, he would not be saved. You have to believe in the literal resurrection of Christ. Can we know if we're saved or not? Catholics and Orthodox tell us we can't know if we're saved. But 1 John chapter 5 verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, in closing, I'm going to look at the orthodox view of history. They see the scriptures written in the first century, which was just part of their tradition. And then from the second to the eighth century, they claim the early church fathers and traditions were established. And then in 1054, the Catholic Church went into apostasy, into schism from them. And then in 1517, the Protestants went into schism with the Catholic Church. So we are an illegitimate schism of a schism. And then in 1672, the Orthodox Church finally canonised its scriptures. And to them, it's all part of a ongoing tradition. But the true history of the Church is that in the first century, the sacred scriptures were written by the inspired apostles. The canon was closed with the last apostle's death. And from the second century onwards, we had contradictory church fathers and protesters of heresy. So we had early Protestants. We had the Novationists from the third to the eighth century who said we are saved by faith alone in Christ, not through works. We had the iconoclasts from the fourth to the ninth century 
who condemned the Orthodox and Catholic Church for their statues and icons and said this is a form of idolatry. They were early Protestants. We weren't invented in 1517. We've been there from the very beginning. There were the Berengarians in the uh, 11th century who denied transubstantiation and they got a massive following in Western Europe. There were the Petrobrusians in the early to mid-1100s and they condemned infant baptism, transubstantiation and veneration of Mary and the saints. They were early Protestants and Peter de Bruce was burned at the stake. There was the Waldensians in the late 1100s, an early Protestant sect that joined the Calvinists in the Reformation. There was the Brethren of the Free Spirit from the 1200s to the 1400s who condemned a lot of Catholic heretical teaching. And there was the Wycliffeites in the 1370s uh, who followed John Wycliffe, an early Protestant reformer. There was the Hussites in the 1400s in Bohemia and Moravia in Central Europe who uh, turned away from Catholicism and were early Protestants. There was Jerome Savonarola who condemned the Catholic Pope as an antichrist and a lot of the false teachings in Catholicism. And he was martyred and then a generation later came Martin Luther. So all throughout the centuries there have been Christians who have protested against Catholic and Orthodox churches. And there was even a Protestant Reformation in Russia uh, who broke away from the Orthodox Church. They were called the Strigolniki, and they were from the mid-1300s to the mid-1400s that condemned the heresies of the Orthodox Church and called people back to the Bible. And so in closing, my friends, I would encourage any of the listeners who are members of the Orthodox Church to consider what the Scriptures said. And before you say that your church is based on the traditions of the apostles, have a look at what the apostles actually taught. The early church believed that salvation, justification was by grace through faith without works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10. Uh, we were saved so that we would do good works, but we're not saved by good works. And bishops had to have a wife and children. That was a requirement for uh, to be a ruler in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 and Titus 1, 7 to 9. Uh, the apostles were allowed to take a wife. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 5. And marriage was encouraged over celibacy. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 5. There was no exaltation or veneration of Mary in the first century. And John the Baptist, who said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. And I'm sure Mary would have said the same thing. There was nothing special about uh, Mary's body in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. 
Uh, someone said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that suckled you. And Jesus said, no, rather blessed are those who believe the word and do it. <clears throat> now, the early church was told to hold to the traditions handed down by the apostles, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 and 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. And we see traditions in that, like the Didache or the writings of Clement, but these writings say nothing about the veneration of Mary or other key Catholic and Orthodox doctrines. Most of the heresies crept in in the 3rd, 4th and 5th centuries onwards. And that, my friends, is why um, we follow the Bible, because it was the original foundation to scripture rather than traditions that diverged away from from it so god bless you thank you for listening and i hope and pray that you're blessed and challenged by this thank you